From working in the insurance industry to becoming an author and trainer, Brian Ahern shares his journey of how he learned the importance of having good manners is one of the many ways to influence people. My favorite thing that he says is seemingly small things can lead to big changes. How we respond by saying thank you can make a big difference in terms of how people choose to interact with us. So stay tuned for his inspirational story. You won't want to miss it. Welcome to the Power of Investing in People podcast. And today, my guest is Brian Ahern. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be with you. So Brian and I just got connected um, maybe like a month ago on LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah, I had heard you speak on uh, a friend of mine's podcast, the Llama Lounge, and just really loved what you were talking about. And so I just had to have you on. So thank you so much for taking time to be here today. You're, you're quite welcome. Joe was a fun interview, and I'm sure this will be too. Great. So I always start off with the first question of what does investing in people mean to you? Okay, well, I will start with this. My personal mission statement uh, says at the very top, my why, that uh, when I die and I stand in front of God, I want to hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think for me <clears throat> to hear that, investing in people is two things, help them enjoy more professional success and personal happiness. And I think that what I do in teaching people about the science of influence is a golden opportunity for people to enjoy more success and have more happiness if they learn what I teach them and they choose to apply it. Mm, I love that. Uh, I love that you wrote, uh, or you say good and faithful servant. So uh, that just kind of brings me to how are you serving? Well, um, I left my corporate job. I spent 30 plus years in the insurance industry and I came in contact with Robert Cialdini's material around the science of ethical influence And I knew when I came across that almost 20 years ago, it's what I would want to do with the rest of my career. And a couple of years ago, I left my corporate position to pursue this on a full-time basis. I really feel like I can have a much bigger impact by not limiting myself to the company that I work for, but by expanding to people really around the world with the tools that we have today. So I really feel like I'm serving people by sharing a lot of free content on uh, places like LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, but then also working with individuals and organizations to teach them what this psychology is and how to ethically apply it. Mm. You know, that's such a, a buzzword right now, ethically ethical, because there's so many things that aren't being done ethically. So um, you're doing amazing, amazing things. Uh, did you have the idea when you left corporate America that you would go out on your own or were you kind of searching for something else or, or had something else in mind and this just kind of fell into your lap? No, I knew this was exactly what I would do. So I started working on my, I'll call it my infrastructure, you know, the website, building out my presence on, especially LinkedIn, to brand myself as somebody who really understood this. I started that uh, about 10 years ago, knowing that Mm. this day would come. I really thought I would probably be with the insurance company a little bit longer. There were certain metrics that were favorable to stay longer. But things started changing in a way that I didn't agree with, and, and I thought it would be better to launch at that time rather than stick around uh, just because of some financial incentives, but not have my heart in it. Well, and you, you said that there were some things that were changing. So did that lead you to really dive into this um, ethical influence? No, because I, 
as I say, when I came across the material, the light bulb came on. For me, I understood that it was the basis of selling. It was the psychology that explained why does some sales training work and some doesn't. So I was really, really intrigued by that. And again, I knew that I would want to do this with my career whenever I left the insurance company. It's just that the change has accelerated the timing on that. But again, I, I knew this is what I was going to do. And I'm very thankful that I took all that time to plan it out. So when I left, I didn't have to build a website. I was three quarters of the way through my first book. I mean, I was way deep in to really have a running start. Hmm. I love that. And good for you that you've already set up, you set up the framework for it. You sent up the, the, um, like you said, the infrastructure. So many people, I think just kind of quit and, and don't set things up beforehand. And it's so crucial to be able to do that. So good for you for having the insight to go ahead and do that. Did you find there was an obstacle that was kind of in your way when you were setting up that that framework or even setting up the idea of of leaving? Were you like, gosh, is this even, is this something I even want to pursue? I, I never doubted pursuing it, but I will say that when I left the safety of a corporate umbrella, it was scary. I remember laying in my bed and my wife and daughter were out of town and I'm thinking, have I just screwed my family? Mm. I mean, it was the, the fear of, of that and thinking like, how much is healthcare going to cost? And I start calculating in my mind, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to make this much money just to pay for healthcare, let alone bills and everything else. And so that part was was scary. But I think, too, that, you know, fear channeled the right way will compel you to or can compel you to take action, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And so I decided, you know, you, you just start fighting. So I acknowledge it, it's scary. And if somebody feels like they're leaving their corporate role and they're afraid and something's wrong with them, I'd say, no, you're normal. Absolutely. You're normal, right? I mean, it, if you don't have fear, then maybe it's not the right thing for you because I think you know, our list, my listeners are people that are in some sort of transition, right? They're like maybe mid career, maybe like they were, are like what you did. They did, you know, several, you know, decades in one industry and they're like, you know what, this is not what I want anymore. Or maybe they're transitioning from military to civilian life, or maybe they've gotten laid off. Um, so is there any piece of advice? Cause you just talked about fears or any piece of advice that you would go uh, that you would give them with someone that's going through um, a possible profession change to go out on their own? Well, I, I think once you have a determination of what you think you want to do, a very easy step is to really start building out your brand on a place like LinkedIn. In other words, start posting as much as you can, create videos, write articles, comment, do things that will show your expertise so that you can start building your network, because then that's the second step, um, not only reaching out and connecting with people, but hopefully people see what you're doing and recognize you as an expert and want to connect with you. So you're starting to build that network because that's going to be the catalyst for opportunities. When people see that you're an expert and they say, hey, could you come and speak at my company or do you coach? Do you train? What do you do? So you've got to be that recognized expert. And I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they make that decision the day that they leave. Well, mm. there's so many other people that have made the decision early on. So you're just, you're way behind. You know, there's an old saying, you don't drink your well, or you don't uh, dig your well when you're thirsty. You <laughs> dig that well long before you get thirsty because you may die of thirst before you get the well dug. So yeah. you've got to 
if you have an opportunity to do so, you've got to start making moves in that direction. And I think positively, too, it will excite you to want to pursue that even more. Mm, I completely agree with you. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking of possibly leaving your uh, position or maybe you are transitioning out of the military, start thinking ahead of time, like Brian just said, and really focus on building your brand, whatever that looks like. And do you think they have to have an end goal in mind when they start building that brand? I think you should have a vision for what it looks like, but I would also not tie yourself so tightly to a vision that you're not willing to be flexible and and change. You may think you want to coach and you may find out you're really good at speaking and people want you to come speak. Well, you know what? Then that's okay. Go in that direction. It's just a different avenue to maybe give to the world what you think that you have to offer that can help people. Um, I learned this a long time ago, too. I, I had a dream when I was in college. I was the president of the weightlifting club at Miami University for three years. I loved working out. I was a competitive powerlifter. After college, I competed in bodybuilding, and I really thought I wanted to own a gym. Mm -hmm. At some point, I let go of that that dream. I don't know when that was, but, you know, I had gotten a job, and I started working. Uh, I met the, the lady who has now been my wife for 32 years, so life kind of took over. But what I, rem- what I realize now is I did fulfill that dream. I am a gym owner. I have a really nice gym in my basement, and I use it every day and have for almost 30 years. So I tell people sometimes you achieve your dreams, but they're just not the way that you thought they would be. And if you don't allow yourself flexibility, you could miss the fact that you are actually living the dream that you, th- that you had hoped for. Mm, I guess you are so right. I love that your your gym is now in your house. You are a gym owner. Absolutely. Yep. And everybody puts the weights away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, and cleans up, right? That's right. <laughs> um, so what's just coming to, to me is um, my own experience. So for me, when I was transitioning, I literally didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do. At some point, I thought it would be a speaker maybe an author, maybe maybe a coach. I really wasn't sure. Um, but I started putting in the work uh, and really building my brand on uh, social media, LinkedIn, Google Plus back in the day, um, and really building up my muscle. I'll call it a muscle of connecting and blogging and building those relationships like you really talked about and building and creating content. And I think that's so crucial in today's world <laughs> is really being able to kind of stand out and build that muscle of what does this look like? Um, I have people now who are, you know, because of the pandemic, they're shifting and trying to pivot and they're, they're completely lost. They have no idea how to create content, how to write a blog, how to, how to do a live stream or anything, you know, that's the, the, in today's world people are doing, or even do a podcast. And I'm thankful that they're reaching out to me um, for for advice, for help, for, you know, some sort of direction. Um, have you found that because you set up that foundation, it really propelled you to literally let go of what you thought your vision was? Because it it kind of took you on a different path, right? Like you started in one direction, and then as you kept creating, creating, it kind of took you into a different path because... You don't, you do have a book, mm-hmm. right? And maybe a couple of books. Is that right? Uh, my second book is with the editor now and will be out in January. Yay. Well, as far as um, 
You know, the interesting thing about the question is I'm a really disciplined person. And you and I have talked about the fact that uh, my father served in the Marines. And and I think I got a lot of that discipline from my father. And then I learned it through sports and in particular weightlifting, um, how to set up a plan and pursue something to an end goal. So when I when I started blogging, I wasn't thinking about writing a book. And I want to give your listeners encouragement. I literally started blogging because I was on the phone with a friend who said, man, this is interesting. You should start a blog. And I had never read a blog. So as we're talking, I clicked on eBlogger and found a way to set up a free blog. And I started blogging. That was more than a dozen years ago. And I've been posting every single week for a dozen years. Wow. Um, what I didn't see was... I could probably take that information and reconstitute it and then add to it and and do some things. And ultimately, it was the basis of my first book. So I didn't have that thought that, uh, hey, I'm going to blog so I can turn this into a book. Um, But your listeners, if you decide you want to start blogging, I would encourage you step back and and say, if I was going to write a book, you know, what would that maybe look like? How could I maybe create content and put that out there in a way that would kind of organize itself so that down the road, maybe a year or two, I have enough that I can reconstitute it all and maybe put it into a book. Much easier than starting to write a book like page one. Okay, what do I want to say? Um, So I would say that's the little bit of the different direction. But in terms of what I'm doing, the speaking, training, the coaching and consulting around the influence, um, that had stayed the goal. And so everything that I do, I do with that in mind. And how can it help to move the ball forward there? Because that's my way then ultimately of impacting people on a professional and a personal basis. Mm, I love that advice. And you're so right. You start off with writing a blog. And next thing you know, you have so much content. You're like, this is a book. Yeah. I mean, I, I again, think... I, I've done this for a dozen years was that's well over 600 blog posts or something. And if each of those is a page or a page and a half, that's a lot of material. Now it's, it was challenging um, because some of the posts that I wrote had to really be reworked a lot. Um, But what I was able to do is systematically put them into like case studies, business examples, social media examples, um, rework them, massage them. But I felt like I had half of what I needed already as I started writing that, that first book. What I will say is it's still harder than, than you think because I started the book a long time ago and then I got bogged down my corporate job. I traveled a lot. I worked long hours and I fell prey to this lie, and this is a lie, that I've got to have like three or four hours of uninterrupted creative time to sit down and write. Yeah. No, if I can get some thoughts down for 30 minutes, that's a little progress. And then yeah. if I can do an hour another day, that's more progress. It doesn't, you know, it, this is not going off to the woods with a uh, smoking jacket and a pipe, you know, <laughs> looking out the window and trying to be all creative to write the next great American novel. That's not what it is. It's it's about consistently cranking out content and then looking at it and saying, how can I reorganize this so that I have my blog posts and I have uh, potential articles and books and things like that? Absolutely. And I love that you said something about, you know, taking 30 minutes a day. So if you're listening and you're like, I don't even know where to start. I mean, good for you guys that you wrote a blog and and you have books, but I don't even know where to start. Well, like Brian just said, you start with that 30 minutes a day. That's all you really need. And for me, I just started out with journaling. 
Like I just wrote down what my thoughts were, what my feelings were, what I was going through and not necessarily like a diary, but it was really about just, um, I also did it in a way that was really showing what I was thankful for. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I started my blog, which was probably 10 years after I started journaling, it was 365 days of thankfulness. And so I wrote every day about what I was thankful for that day. And it was literally the biggest things to the littlest things. And uh, I think it's, it, you know, I, I said it before about building up that muscle. It really is a muscle. It's a creative muscle. It's a, it's a brain muscle. It, it gets different neural pathways going in your brain. And, and when you do, when you create like that on a regular basis. Yeah. I think too, that people have an opportunity, whatever, whatever you even have an inkling, if you said, man, if I could do this, you know, for my job, this is what I'd want to do. And then you say, okay, if I was doing that, what are the kind of things that I'd want to convey to the world or teach people? And then you take one thing. You don't let yourself, you know, go off on tangents. You take one thing and you say, how would I share that with somebody in five minutes or less? That's usually a typical blog post, maybe seven, 800 words. It would literally take you about three to five minutes to read it out loud. That's really not that much when you break it down to that small thing. And for people who feel like they're not good writers, I'd say get get a an app that will transcribe your voice and speak your thoughts and then look at them in black and white and go back and start refining for punctuation and, and more clarity and, and things like that. But there are creative ways to ultimately make this happen. Mm, very true. Very true. And even as podcasters, I've talked to many podcasters who have taken content from their show of the things that they've said, and they've transcribed the content um, just from the, the bits and pieces that they, they may have been a solo episode or they may have done an, an interview episode. And the interview episode of what they had said, they took and made it into a book. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's so many ways, so many ways to create a product basically is what you're doing. Yes. Sky's the limit. I I have a friend who uh, is a recovering alcoholic. He's been sober for 30 plus years now, I think. And he sent me sayings that he's collected over the years, just wisdom from people he's heard in AA meetings. And I'm reading it and I'm like, you got a book here. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be, you know, 40,000 words. It could be literally that quote with an inspirational picture turn the page, another one of those nuggets and something else that's inspirational or maybe expand on it a little bit. But but you've got the basis here for a book. He was never really thinking much about that, but now his wheels are turning. He's like, how could I turn this into something that could be given out at AA meetings to help people who uh, are, are coming in and don't know what to expect, but could inspire them? Mm, so true. And for me, that's what writing a book is really about is you know, inspiring, motivating, empowering the, the reader. Mm-hmm. It's, it is, um, it's quite a thing when you finally finish it. And, and I will say this, there's a lot of things in life that anybody can do. I've run a lot of marathons. I had some really good marathons. I had some really bad ones, but I, but I will tell you, virtually anybody listening to this podcast could run a marathon. Some, it might be a slow walk, but they could cover the the miles. If they Mm. put in some training, had a plan, they could do it. Anybody could write a book. But I will tell you that when you do those things and you realize how few people actually will dedicate themselves to it, it is, it is an incredible feeling. The first time I held that book, the hard copy, and I was like, wow, 
this is just like the things I pick up at Barnes and Noble. Um, and, and I jokingly tell people it wasn't as nice as holding our daughter when she was born, mm-hmm. but it was pretty close. Cause I had a hand in creating <laughs> both of them. Oh, wow. You're bringing tears to my eyes. Cause I just remember that exact feeling when I, I got the box of ship of shipment of my books and I'm opening it up and I'm like, this is me. (laughs) And and, and, like, you can feel it like, Oh my gosh, this is a book. What? What? Yeah. Yeah, It was, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I get the words, there's no words to even describe it really. There's yeah. It's just such a sense of accomplishment. And and I know many people set out and they've run a marathon. They never ran one after that, but that sense of accomplishment, like I never thought I could do this and I dedicated myself and I did it. What else, if I dedicated myself to, would I be able to achieve? That's really what reaching some of these goals means for us, that we did things we thought previously we might not be able to do, but since we did, what else can I tackle now? Hmm. So speaking of books, and you're right, well, like, if I could do this, what else can I do? You know, that's such a great a great thing, especially I have never run a marathon, but I've written a book. So I think that that as well, like I've written a book, what else could I do? Um, so tell us about your book. I know you that you have one that is that the editor, but you also have one that you can get now. Right. Uh, so the book's called Influence People. And the word people is the subtitle. It's an acronym for powerful everyday opportunities to persuade that are lasting and ethical. And I wrote the book because uh, having trained for Robert Cialdini now for a dozen years and interacting with lots of different audiences, people are fascinated by this research from social psychology and behavioral economics. I mean, it is so clear that when you tap into it the right way, you can have so many more people saying yes and doing what you want. But the challenge that they've had, even people who've been through workshops, is actually putting it into practice. Mm. They can read the studies, they can be really fascinated, and then not see how do I put this into practice at the office or at home. And my book really helps the readers do that. I don't go deep into the research. There's great books like Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. Uh, but my book focuses on the practical application. So I give a lot of stories from what I saw when I was working with the insurance company, how we uh, utilize the psychology to get better results. I looked at business case studies, things that I had been observing over time, where sometimes they did it really well and sometimes they didn't. Um, looked at social media as social media was expanding and what are, what are things we can do to be more persuasive on social media? What are things that we do that really hurt the cause? So that's what the book is all about, the practical application of this psychology. Mm. And so um, is there any nuggets that you care to share with us that, that for to be able to have that practical application? Um, there's 150 something pages of nuggets. Awesome. It really, it really depends on what somebody is trying to accomplish and are they at home or are they at the office? But I can tell you, you know, one of the stories that really grabbed people's attention, I call it 700,000 great reasons to use yellow sticky notes. And (laughs) what happened at the insurance company that I worked for, and this was uh, at least 10 years ago, I had come back from an extended Christmas break. And pretty quickly, I was called into a room with about half a dozen people. And here's the problem that we faced. We had overpaid insurance agents in one of our operating states in the month of December, accidentally doubled their commission. So we overpaid 150 insurance agents, a total of $700,000. Wow. And the challenge that we had was, 
how can we get that money back as quickly as possible? Yeah. Um, so we, we brainstormed together and we finally determined, you know, we can't press a button and like electronically take it out of their bank account. We are going to have to send a letter to every one of these 150 agency owners to ask them to please send the money back. So if you're a listener, imagine this for a moment. Let's say you're an insurance agent and you're sitting in your office 100 or 500 miles away from the home office and you get a letter from the accounting manager, mm-hmm. somebody you've probably never met, never spoken to. And this letter basically says you owe us $4,000, dollars $10,000. Please sit down and write us a check as quickly as possible. It's probably not going to the top of the priority list. Right. And we understood this. But fortunately for the accounting department, I had done some training the year before, and I had specifically talked about research that showed if you attach yellow sticky notes to something like a a request to take a survey and you put a personalized message on that sticky note, subconsciously people recognize that that is more effort on the part of the person sending it. It's not just this form letter. You've taken the time to put the sticky note. You personally sign it. And what happened in two different studies was it doubled the response rate when they were asking people to take a survey. Wow. So, so I told my, my friend, Steve, who was the accounting manager, I said, Steve, do you remember what I taught you last year about the sticky notes? And he said, yeah. And I said, if you don't have time to put a sticky note and personally sign it on every one of the 150 letters, call me and I'll come do it. And then he remembered and he said, no, I'll, I'll make sure I do it. Two weeks later, I called him up and I said, Steve, how is the collection going? And his exact words were, I'm floored. Really? I said, I said, why? And he goes, we've already got money back from 130 of the 150. What? Wow. Now, the optimist in me, I said, we didn't get it all back. And he laughed at me. He goes, come on, man, we're talking about money. He goes, I fully expected many of them to say, it's your mistake, you fix it, or take it out of next month's commission, or put me on a payment plan, because I spent it. I said, anything except sit down and write that check. Now, again, this is a guy who's dealing with people every day about money. He knows how hard it is. And he was blown away by the response by putting that sticky note on. And we ended up getting money from 147 of the 150 uh, in full. So that's, that's one story that is so simple. If you're a listener, the next time you send something the old fashioned way, you put something in the mail and you're asking someone to do something, pull out a sticky note. Yeah. Put a little handwritten note like, Hey, thanks so much for helping out or thanks for considering this and put that on there. And I think you will be pleasantly surprised at how much more often people actually reply and do what you want them to do, because the research is undeniable. Mm. I, you know, I, I love, love, love handwritten notes. There is something, especially thank you notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got a card uh, in the mail, a personalized card in the mail from a friend of mine. And it was so meaningful because it one, it just really... Um, solidifies that personal connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially in a day and age right now in, in the, you know, in the age of quarantining and um, isolating uh, and social distancing to be able to have now that gift of getting something in the mail that it was somebody thought of you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it engages what we call reciprocity. Your willingness to do something for your friend who sent that is much higher because of all the things that you're feeling. And when we talk about reciprocity, you know, we talk about giving things that are meaningful, meaning more is better, 
that they're personalized, that they mean something to you. You know, if I send you a Starbucks card and you're not a coffee drinker, you're like, "Eh, I appreciate the sentiment. But if I sent you something for something you really like, you're like, wow, you, you heard me? You remember that? I mean, it elevates the giving. And then when it's unexpected, you do all three of those things and you will be pleasantly surprised at how people's willingness to do something for you if you need a favor goes, goes through the roof. And, and there are so many simple ways to tap into this. As ga- example, um, I clicked on Facebook today and I glanced and I saw a number of people in their birthdays. And there was one person that I actually sent a text to. Mm. And, and, and because I know if I post on Facebook, it's going to be one of many that they scroll through. But if I send them a text, that stands out. And it get, uh, always will get a reply about, hey, you know, really appreciate you thinking of me. And, but, but I've done something to make it stand out versus what we normally do, which is just hop on Facebook. And, and that's certainly better than nothing. But there, these are very simple things that we all can do that will make it more meaningful for that other individual. Mm, it's so true. And so your book has lots of examples in, in those little things of law of reciprocity and, and little meaningful things. Yes. And, and I stress this a lot that seemingly small things can lead to big changes. You know, yeah. how we respond um, to uh, thank you can make a big difference. Our willingness to say thank you um, can make a big difference in, in terms of how people choose to interact with us. Now, whether it's because good manners are, are just not as in style as they were when I was young or when you were younger, I've always noticed that being very polite and saying yes, please, or no, thank you really stands out. I've had people go out. Wow, it's, it's nice to speak to somebody who has good manners. Mm-hmm. You know, just create the habit of doing that. You'll be pleasantly surprised there how that small thing can get people much more willing to do something if you need a favor. It's so true. You are spot on. You're saying that you heard them, that you are valuing them as a human being. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes that's all people need. I just recently had this experience when I posted something on. um, So because of the, the thankful theme, I do thankful Thursdays on Facebook of, you know, what are you thankful for today? And I had someone, you know, kind of take it and be a Debbie Downer. And uh, for lack of a better term, and she was like, there's absolutely nothing that I can be thankful for. And so I reached out to her in a private message and, you know, just kept asking her, you know, questions and, you know, saying, you know, I I, I hear you. She had a lot of personal things going on and professional things going on. And, you know, we have all the the world going on, elections and pandemic and blah, blah, blah. Right. And um, I did not criticize. I did not even offer advice. I just listened and um, validated everything that she was feeling. And um, then, of course, at the end, I said, well, I, I do hope that it it get will get better for you because I know from my own experience, it, it will. And not even two weeks later, she's writing. I, and I don't even know this person in, in person. Like she just became a friend of mine uh, through social media. And she Wait, you know, two weeks later was writing, I got a new dog. My business is booming. And I was like, wow, wow, wow. What a difference. Mm-hmm. And you never know, you know, it kind of goes to that old um, thing is you never know what people are going through. 
Yeah, you you really don't. I mean, even people you think you know, I'll never forget, this was quite a long time ago, uh, as I kind of glance out my my window there, that there was a couple that used to live across the street and, you know, just two really nice people. The guy always putzed around fixing things and wife is in the yard with the little kids and just seemed like the all-American couple. And, you know, winter comes, it was pretty harsh winter. We didn't see much. We're all locked inside and when spring broke and finally went over and having a conversation and he said, yeah, we're getting divorced. I'm like, what? Because, you know, from what you'd see from the outside, you're just always in the garage fixing and she's in the yard with the kids and you seemed happy. And we never know what's going on when the doors close. We only know what people let us in on or what we observe. You know, if, if something kind of leaks out, if you're really paying attention, certain words and looks and things you can start picking up, but most of us, don't have the time or energy to do that. And so we're just like casually observing those around us. And we think, oh, well, they're probably like me. Everything's just, you know, hunky-dory for them. It's not yeah, the case. Right. And I have a question about that because this has come up to me in my own life. So when people do that, do you think that they're being, um, that they're putting on a facade, that they're being fake, do that they're lying uh, for uh, the keeping up with Joneses, so to speak? Um, I don't think so. I I don't think this is my perspective too, though. I I don't think most people are trying to put up this facade that, Hey, we're so happy. I I think he probably was happy putzing around in the garage and fixing things. And she probably was happy playing with the kids in, in the front yard, but I never had a meal with them. I don't know how they talk to each other at dinner. I don't know if they even ate dinner together. I mean, there's so many things that we wouldn't have privy to if they didn't let us in on that. Um, I think on social media, there might be the keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing, because unfortunately, that's become a place where we go and we compare ourselves to just about everybody. And so um, it's like the annual Christmas letter. You got to talk about how wonderful everything is. Um, so in social media, I, I think that's definitely the case, but I really, I wouldn't say that with the people I've observed in, in real life, in person. Mm, those Christmas letters. <laughs> I remember getting them as a kid or my mom getting them as a kid and reading them. And I'm like, what, why does any of this matter? <laughs> but, you know, like you said, they're just keeping up with the Joneses or, you know, um, trying to put your best foot forward and only talk about the good things, I guess. Cause that's what you think people want to hear. Yeah, um, I, I found though that when when you're honest, that's where you really have a chance to to have an impact. And I say honest, I mean just being authentic with things that may not be so so good, or opening up and sharing a struggle that you have or had. And then somebody's like, "I'm not the only one," and and then you really start having authentic conversation with, with people. I completely agree, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to start this podcast. So for myself, the reason I asked that question is because I was in an abusive relationship for 12 years. And when I got out of it, I started to talk about it. People were like, I had no idea. Um, and I said, it's because I had so much shame around it that I didn't want to speak about it. And um, as I started to heal, I really saw how, you know, um, I was uh, bullied as a child and then became a bully. And then I got into this relationship where we're bullying each other. And, you know, we were, I mean, I was guilty abusing him back, right. In response to what, you know, reaction to what was happening to me. And, um, I really started to look at 
acknowledge like all of the things that I had overcome, abuse, addiction, um, anger, depression, low self-worth, being a bully and being bullied and really found that they, there wasn't that authentic communication podcast out there that's really talking about how those obstacles actually fueled your fire to do the, to the, do the next thing for yourself, whatever that looks like, whether that was healing, maybe that was starting a business, maybe that was writing the blog, maybe that was just exploring what your options are when, if you leave your job or leave the military or, you know, you get fired, you know, who knows? So was there any kind of obstacle that you faced that you thought, huh, here's a really, um, moment for me now that I can use it as fuel to move forward? Hmm. Um, nothing is jumping out in the business, but I can think of, of an example. When I first went to college and the first, one of the first tests that I took, uh, I got an A and I thought this is easy. And then the same class, the next test, I got a D. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Mm. I'm going to end up back in my hometown pumping gas. Um, <laughs> But I, uh, you know, that was a long, long time ago, and I still remember it. It lit a fire under me, and and I'm I'm thankful that um, I've always found with myself, whatever I apply myself to, I can succeed, and I can usually do very well at it. But it's not because I have a natural talent. I don't consider myself like naturally gifted. Like, oh, I didn't study and I got an A. No. But when I studied, I got A's. And so I learned that when I put in hard work, I would ultimately get results. But if I didn't put in the work, I didn't get the results. And I'm thankful for that because then if I hadn't recognized that about myself early, I would have just kind of rested on my laurels or natural talent. And I wouldn't have been able to achieve as much potential as I think I have thus far. So for me, um, bumping up against something, if I've failed or I think I'm going to fail, is usually what will light a fire in me to say, no, there's, there's a way around this and I'm going to figure this thing out. And that will typically propel me forward. I will give one other example. The first marathon that I ran um, was a humbling experience. I was feeling great at mile 15, about mile 18. I'm starting to feel tired at mile 20. I decided I'd walk a little bit Um And all of a sudden, people of all shapes, sizes, colors, sex are running by me. And at the time, I'm in my mid-30s. I'm like, how can that be? Because I'm young and I'm in shape. And how are these people who don't look like they're in a fraction of the shape that I am, how are they running by me? Um, My wife meets me at mile 22 and she goes, how do you feel? And I go, this is the hardest effing thing I've ever Mm. done. I'm never going to do this again. And you know, she'd, she'd try to be an encouragement. She'd say, let's just run to the lamppost. And I'd start running and then I would just stop and I'd walk and my mind was going, why? What's the point? This is stupid. I mean, I, I literally had hit the wall. Yeah. So I finished that thing in four hours and 20 minutes or something. Two Which hours later. Amazing time, by the way. Well, but it wasn't what I thought I was going to right, do based right. on my training. Right. But two hours later, a bunch of Gatorade, my mind came back and I thought, I know what I did wrong. I'm going to rededicate myself to this and see if I can improve. And all of a sudden, six months later, I cut 45 minutes off of the time, which is huge. And then I thought, hey, if I really dedicate myself to this, I might be able to qualify for the Boston Marathon. So I pour my heart and soul into training for that. And I miss qualifying by 57 seconds. And I'm like, 
So I said, you know what? I'm not going to let this beat me. I spent another year training just to shave off one minute, but I did it and I qualified. And so I give that as an example of, yes, I ran into, I literally ran into the wall, Yeah. but, but I was ultimately when I qualified for Boston, I ran an hour faster than that first marathon. Wow. And I think a lot of people would have given up after that would have said, Oh my God, this is so hard. I don't ever want to do this. And I'm like, no, I didn't do this as well as I think I can. And I'm going to step back. I'm going to read. I'm going to learn. I'm going to rededicate myself. And, uh, and I'm so glad I did. I felt like I achieved probably as much potential as I was going to given time constraints, family and things like that. But I'm really proud of the fact that I made such a transformation, was able to qualify for something as, as historic as the Boston Marathon, because there's been a lot of good runners who've never been able to do that. So that is something I'm thankful for. Mm, and and that, that story is so beautiful. Again, you're bringing tears to my eyes. <laughs> um, because I just think about, you know, our, our listeners and, and, you know, really anybody who is, you know, up against a challenge right now. And your mind is becomes your enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, you know, when I was going through everything that I was going through, it was, um, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not enough of anything. Right. Um, and I was just waiting to die when I was in that relationship. And I really thought at some point he was going to kill me. So I'm just in awe of when I hear people's stories, how you take what you could perceive as a stopping point, um, and really dive in, um, to yourself, peel away the layers, um, of what needs to heal or fix or, you know, train more or, you know, get stronger. And that's what you did, not only in your business, in, in training for the marathon, but in studying for, you know, college when you were back in college. And so many people, I think, just kind of give up. They're like, well, I don't really need to go any further. I don't need to pursue. I'm okay, quote unquote, okay, where I'm at. And um, I always you know, feel that the way to grow is to strive for more, is to look at what am I, you use the word potential, what am I, what could I do if I really tapped into my maximum potential? I I, I think most of us don't know that. I don't know that anybody ever fully reaches it, Um, but you, you can certainly set some goals out there. Again, I, I say like with the marathon, and could I run faster? I probably could have run a little bit faster, but again, given the constraints of my family and and oh, a full time job and all the things that were there, I was I was pleased to accomplish something that again I know many other people weren't able to accomplish. And then I set myself my sights on something different. I started I got involved in Taekwondo because my daughter was there and I wanted to keep her involved and stay active with her. And uh, we ended up testing for our black belts together. I went out and got mm. my second degree black belt. And again, that was something that I felt like, well, a good number of people get their black belt. So I want to go one step further. Could I have gotten a third and a fourth? I, yes, I think I could have if I had stayed. But when she decided she didn't want to do it anymore, my primary goal was time with her. I thought, well, I've got a lot of other things that, are, that my time could be used towards too. So I don't feel like I shortchanged myself. But, but I, again, felt like, Hey, I pushed this further than most people will, and uh, now it's time to move to yet another new goal. Mm. So uh, I'm. You just 
set up a great segue. So you talked about um, being a father and really being an example for your daughter. Um, And it just comes to mind of my own um, relationship with my dad. So my question is, in your life, did you have any kind of influence, whether how to be or how not to be, um, to get you to where you are now? As far as a parent? Parent, business owner, you know, anything. Well, I think different things stand out at different times. So I will say as a parent, the probably life-changing decision was, and and I can glance and I'm looking right at my kitchen window over there. Uh, I was standing at the kitchen window. Our daughter was probably under a year old or something. And my wife said, hey, Abigail and I are going to go to the park. Do you want to go? And I said, no, I'm kind of tired. And then I thought, you know, my wife and I had gone through some transformation where we both were looking back at our parents and how we were raised and questions. And I remembered my wife, you know, questioning at times when she was little, like, why didn't dad go on vacation with mom and Ann and I, mm. Why, you know, why this and why that? And she just, you know, it, it, it raised questions for her, caused some doubts and things. Uh, and I remember it was, I was looking out the window and it just hit me. I don't, I don't want Abigail to grow up and say, why didn't dad go to the park? Why didn't dad do this? Why didn't dad do that? So I couldn't go back and change the past for my wife, but I can learn from it. And I said, hey, I tell you what, I'm going to go and went to the park. And that seemingly insignificant decision that day, I think, opened the door for my daughter and I to do a lot of things. And so we got involved in a father-daughter group um, on the suggestion of a coworker. And she loved it. And that morphed into her and I camping some, which morphed into us doing Taekwondo together, um, spending usually a Saturday or Sunday going to a coffee shop as she got older. Now she's, she'll be 25 soon. So sometimes it's like, Hey, let's go get a drink and sit down and have a beer or something. But it was never a strange thing for her that dad would say, I want to spend time with you or that I would ask her questions about anything because she knew Dad loves me. He doesn't judge me. Even if he doesn't agree with what I'm going to tell him, he's going to listen. And that foundation was built by spending time together where we were going places and we just, we would talk. Yeah. And so how important do you think it is as a parent to uh, really engage in the law of reciprocity? Um, It's incredibly important because when when we do things for our, our children, and, and we do have to teach them, we do have to point that out, they start to recognize that, wow, you know, mom or dad's doing this for me, it's the least I can do to, to do something for them or, or to respond positively when they ask us things. And I will give you an example. And um, when my daughter was about 14, and I always say, you know, turning into a young woman, two hour showers and boys and You know, she's moving out of the tomboy stage. And the last thing she wants to do on a hot summer day is cut the grass for dear old dad. But I, but I traveled a lot and I needed help sometimes. Now I knew with my understanding of, of kids that, and psychology, that if I would have said, Hey, Abigail, uh, I will give you a raise in your allowance if you cut the grass. In other words, I'm going to negotiate a reward. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. She might have said how much and tried to negotiate me for more money. And I wasn't asking her to do it every week, or she might have just said, Dad, no, thanks. I don't like money that much. So I'm going to decline your <laughs> offer. And the worst thing I could have done then is pull the dad card and say, well, fine, you'll do it for free now because I'm your dad. And I said so. Right. So I leaned on my understanding of psychology and reciprocity. 
And um, we were in the car one day and I said, Abigail, I'm going to give you a raise in your allowance, $10 a week. And she was happy. And she said, why? And I told her things I was legitimately proud of. And, uh, but I also knew this, that it would make it easier when I needed a favor down the road. So a few weeks later, I get ready to travel. And I said, hey, Abigail, I'm going to be going out of town. Would you cut the grass for me? And I could see the look on her face. She was going to give me the, don't make me do it. I hate cutting the grass. She was going to start the pleading. But I cut it off at the pass. And I go, wait a minute. I go, I just gave you a raise in your allowance. And I didn't ask you to do anything. Can't you help me? And she pauses and she thinks and she goes, okay. And she never resisted after that. She doesn't like it. She hates cutting the grass. But she clearly sees dad has done a lot of nice things for me. And I want him to keep doing those nice things. It's the least I can do to do nice things for him. As she got older, she started to recognize how she was raised differently. And so Mm -hmm. those also caused her to be more willing to do things whenever we needed some some help or, or something like that. So I think that understanding of psychology and how to engage reciprocity, and that's different than offering rewards. Mm-hmm. It's, I was doing, and then I just pointed out, hey, I do all these things for you. Life will be a lot easier for everybody if you w- willingly do things for us and we keep this virtuous cycle going. Mm, it's that... That's such a beautiful thing when that when it works out. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking in my own life, there was no way that that worked out in my favor um, as a as a as a child um, because my parents didn't set that the ground the groundwork. And I think that's what's so crucial is that you set that groundwork back when she was one years old mm-hmm. when you went to the park with her. Mm-hmm. And so. I know you, you mentioned about you couldn't change your, your, or, you know, you couldn't influence what happened in your wife's life. Was there um, a time when you're in your own life that you were, you know, with your parents and you're like, you know what, I think I'm, I have to make different choices when I'm a parent. Oh, absolutely. Um, My parents ended up getting divorced um, the summer of my, between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college and and we knew it was coming. My dad had moved out of the house. But I think I've always looked at what went on with the two of them. And I didn't like that it ultimately ended in divorce. Uh, it probably had to, given all the things that happened. But I think that made me much more intentional about working on my marriage um, because I didn't want to end up there. I didn't, you know, my wife and I, like any couple, we had our struggles. And I remember thinking, God, I could never imagine, I could not imagine not waking up and seeing our daughter first thing Mm -hmm. in the morning or kissing her goodnight, things like that. Um, So I'm going to do whatever I can to make this thing work. And I think my wife was, my wife came from a family that was the opposite. Nobody in their line had ever been divorced. Um, Mm. But I think that probably created a pressure of, I don't want to be the first to, to have something like that happen. So I think we both looked at how we were raised and we don't, hold grudges, blame, anything like that. But we just looked at it and said, we're going to make some different choices here. And we're going to really make sure that our daughter understands how we were raised, but how we chose to raise her uh, so that she can make better, clearer choices when that time comes for her to to be a parent. And, and so far, I think it's worked incredibly well. You know, in the beginning, we talked about investing in people means to you is um, being a good and faithful servant. And it sounds like you are, I mean, and in not only your business, but in your family as well. 
And what's just kind of popped up in my uh, head was um, forgiveness. Um, have you, well, in everything that you know with your um, background, have you discussed forgiveness not only with your wife, but also, you know, with your mom and, you know, and, and what her and your dad went through? Um, yeah, I mean, because there's been a lot of things over the years that, that one or the other has had to say sorry and the other has had to forgive. And forgiveness doesn't mean forgetfulness, but it does, I think it does mean making a choice to not hold that against the other person so that they feel a sense of freedom. They don't feel like uh, every move is being scrutinized under the past and, and what has happened. I think forgiveness um, ultimately pays bigger dividend to the one forgiving than the person who's forgiven. And, and, and I will say that I don't think my mom has figured that out yet. And so that's something that we'll be talking about because um, quite often the person who's hurt us they're not even thinking about us anymore. Right. And yet we're trapped in this prison. You know, we are consumed with them and consumed with what they did. And, and uh, whether it's hatred or wanting to get back or, and even if it's not to that degree, the fact that it's there and it's fueling something says it has a hook in you. Mm-hmm. And, and you need to, you need to be able to let go of that if you want to be happy and really feel content and free. Mm, so true. My, um, So forgiveness for me was instrumental in being able to move forward. Um, I had not only had so much anger towards my ex-boyfriend, but I had so much anger towards my dad. And growing up, I mean, it was such a a tumultuous relationship that there were days that, or there were months that we didn't even speak, uh, even in my 20s and and 30s. Mm -hmm. And so... um, well, I'd say early thirties, but anyway, um, he became my best friend, um, because I changed one. I forgave him, even though I didn't have to tell him I forgave him, but I let go of the, the grudge and I let go of the expectation of, of thinking that he was going to be different and really just allowed him to be who he was and love him for who he was. Mm-hmm. And my mom, I had to do the same thing. However, what I, when I did it was um, when she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And that was such a, again, instrumental moment in obviously all of our lives, uh, all of our family's lives. But for her, I think she was able to like be at peace mm-hmm. um, when she passed away. She was able to be at peace, even though, you know, she wasn't anything what I thought, you know, I expected her to be as a mother because she ended up actually becoming bitter because of the things that she went through with my dad. She became a bitter person. And um, so she was a bitter mother. I know that at some, you know, she was trying to do her best, but her own feelings, you know, stuck in her head, all the things we were talking about with all the obstacles when you were running and hitting the wall. I think she was constantly there. Well, you and I talked before we did the show. We, and so, you know, my father served in the Marines and and I went through very similar things. I, I will say that the perspective when you're young you want to get your answers, and rightfully so. You want to understand, um, I think, is at least for me, as I got older and matured some, I started to realize that not only do I need to get answers, but I need to understand the whys behind that. Yeah. And and that gave me a lot more uh, grace for my dad, who, who served in Vietnam and saw horrible things and um, 
and didn't have some kind of outlet for that. I think when he came back, it never excuses the bad behavior, but it, but it, I mean, it does make some of us go, well, would I have done the same thing? You know, if I'd been in the 1960s and people aren't talking about um, PTSD and counseling and all this, would I have just come back and had this anger and this rage and taken it out on doing different things that weren't socially acceptable, but still got it out somehow? Um, So I started to have, towards the end, a lot more grace. So I pushed hard and he pushed back and and then I, like you, I started to just kind of let go and say, okay, he's not going to be who I think he should be, but I'm just going to appreciate the time with him. And, and I could always tell him, my wife could too, whenever we were in Florida and we would see him, how he would hug us when we were got there, when we left, the smile on his face, he was so genuinely happy to have us there. And, and when I was able to just enjoy that um, and let go of what I think things ought to be like your like you mentioned about your mother, my father did um, come to some peace with it, I think, and some of it had to do with me um, finally expressing you know first of all saying sorry about pressing so hard on some things, but also some forgiveness issues and in the last week or so of his life, he found a letter that I had sent him for his seventieth birthday, so that was nine years ago. And and sent me a text and said, I, I found that letter you sent me on my 70th birthday. He goes, it brought tears to my eyes. I didn't remember writing the letter. I had to go back in my computer and I found it and it brought tears to my eyes. But but it meant the world to him. And the fact that he read that in his last week or so of life, because he we had no idea he was going to pass. It was sudden. Um, gave me a lot of peace and comfort about about his passing. <laughs> Just got to take a deep breath for a minute. Wow, what a beautiful story. And it's very similar to my own. As a daughter of a, um, a father who was also in the war, um, although I have no idea what war I'm assuming is a Vietnam war because of the, the timeline. Um, but he was drafted to Korea and he came back. Well, he told us this story. Let me back up. He told us this story six months before he passed away. And I didn't know the story. I didn't know he was in uh, I didn't know he was drafted. I thought he had been enlisted this whole time into the army. And as he's telling us this story, he said something to the effect of, I didn't have a choice. And um, that, that phrase just like permeated my soul when he said that, because I felt like how many times have I said that? And maybe he said it to us, or maybe it was just a mindset that he had that I, you know, I remember when I was in an abusive relationship, I said it t- multiple times to myself, like, I don't have a choice to leave. I have to be in this relationship, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, I just think about how he met, like you had talked about, like the why, like, how did he grow up and how did, you know, how was his dad and how was his parents and, you know, what were they like? And I remember at breakfast one day, um, we had went out for breakfast, my, my stepmom and him and I, and we, I brought up his parents and he said, you know, they were wonderful. They were wonderful, loving parents. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, he laughed. He's like, what what, what do you mean? He's like, that's funny. And I go, no, really, dad, like what happened to you? Like you weren't wonderful, loving parent. So what happened? And he never answered that question, but I know it, it got like it, it set somewhere. Mm -hmm. It like settled in, in somewhere because he, 
started to, and I wasn't accusatory or, you know, like pointing fingers or anything like that. And, and to be honest, had I not healed myself, I would not have been able to have those conversations with him. I would have been more pointing the finger and blaming and shaming him for how he treated us growing up. But I was able to just come from a place of love and see him as, as an innocent human being that he is just a product of how he was raised too, and say, you know, what happened? And he never really ever said anything ever went wrong in his childhood. Um, However, when he was explaining that whole story six months before he passed away about how he was drafted, I just thought that's part of it right there. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me is fuel for the fire to help, you know, people who are in transition from military to civilian life to really give them an opportunity to, to let it out, to talk about their PTSD. I know he had to have all kinds of stuff going on in his, while he was over there and he was there for a year, um, saw things and did things he probably never expected that he would ever be in that position. Mm -hmm. And to be able to help the future generation you know, overcome that. Because again, like your dad, we, it was just never talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that generation just shut down. They came back and they shut down and how that affects the people around them. I don't even think they understood that or even considered that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they did too. And, And of course too, you know, you're pretty young. My dad was very young when, when he served and when he got out and, um, he did, you know, I, I am fortunate that he did finally um, do his best to open up. He wrote a document. It was probably 30, 35 pages, so not quite a book, but his, I'll say, memoir of why he went in, who he met, um, where he went, things that happened. Um, and he gave it to me and he said, "This maybe this will answer some questions. Maybe it'll raise more. Um my, as I told you when we talked before, I'm going to, I think, try to put that into some kind of like book format, um, add my letter to him on his 70th, because I think if people read what he went through and read the letter and the eulogy and some of the comments from others and try to put it into something that hopefully people in the military would be able to take and give to people and say, look, you're a a young father here. You might want to read this and consider because, you know, what's going to, what's happening now, what will happen when you get out, this is all going to impact who you are, which is going to impact your kids and their kids beyond them. And, and you do have a choice in how you're going to deal with this. Um, And so I think, I think my dad would be incredibly proud if he knew that that's, how his time and the struggles that we went through and and some of the harsh and angry words that we had as we tried to fight through this and figure it out, I think he would be really happy to know that um, he's still helping people. Because he said in, in his memoir, he said that he was, he was asked at a dinner party, what is the greatest experience of your life? And he said, without hesitation, he said, being a Marine, leading men in combat. Mm. Above, that put, put it above his his wife, whom he was married to for 38 years, I put it above the birth of his two children, my, myself and my, my sister, bar none, that was the defining thing in, in his life. So if he would look down and, and realize that he is still helping people, you know, in, in the services, he would just be ecstatic. Mm. 
That's such a beautiful story. And, and I hope you do um, create that, that, I don't want to call it a memoir. It will, it will be a collection of, you know, his story and your story and, and it will impact lives. So definitely when you decide to do that, we'll have you back on for sure. Um, My goodness, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Brian, for, for being here. And so um, I always have to ask, so I know that you do some training and I know you have your book and your coach and you're a speaker. So how can, if people want to reach out to you and be like, you know, I want you to come to speak at my event or, um, you know, well, right now it's maybe virtual. Um, how do they re- connect with you? How do they reach you? Well, uh, I would encourage anybody who's listening, connect with me on LinkedIn. If you don't put a message on there to say that you heard me on the podcast, rest assured, I will get back to you and say, how did you find me? I'd like to understand why people are reaching out. Uh, I think it's a great conversation starter. Social media is supposed to be social. So, you know, we might have a little conversation based on that. Uh, From there, I I post a lot of stuff. So if you're interested in understanding more about influence and persuasion, you'll see a lot of information on uh, every day out on LinkedIn. Another place to go is my website, which is influencepeople.biz, B-I-Z. Um, from there, there's a, a link you can click on to contact me that'll send an email. Um, there's a lot of free information there. I've been on almost 100 podcasts, so you can go back and listen to podcasts. Uh, there's a lot of video. been blogging for more than a dozen years, so there's a lot of free resources there, but that's the second avenue to connect with me. Awesome. And um, influencepeople.biz, correct? correct? Yeah, and we'll have that on the show notes as well. So Oh, goodness. So much goodness in this conversation. So I just really appreciate the value that you've given, um, you know, not only the, my audience, but myself as well. And um, I always like to leave with this question of what phrase, scripture or mantra are you living by right now? Well, I do probably well done, good and faithful servant. Uh that's, as I say, it's the opening of my personal mission statement. And I try to listen to that first thing in the morning when I'm getting my coffee. I've got it on my phone. I usually just press it and, and listen to the entire uh, mission statement. And then at the end, it says, I always need to remember that I work to live. I don't live to work. And I'm never going to mm. let my, my faith, my family, or my personal well-being uh, be sacrificed at the expense of my career. So I love what I do but I am not going to allow it to consume me so that those other things that are more important, faith, family, and personal well-being uh, get pushed aside. So mm. that would, those would be the two things. Well, it's beautiful. And you, you are a complete example of that, that you are loving what you do and it, and it shows because when you talk about it, you just light up. So thank you for being thank- here. Oh, thank you for having me on. I I do love it. I love talking about it. It's an opportunity to impact a whole bunch of people who probably have never heard my name before, but but now they will. And I and I hope that it uh, helps you too with your with your followership. Uh, I'm sure they will love it. So we can't wait to hear the comments on the reviews about it. So thank you. You're welcome. Don't turn this off just yet. Does the thought of collaborating and connecting with a diverse group of creative thought leaders appeal to you? Do you have a compelling story and don't know where to start? Have you ever thought about writing a book and thought, 
about writing the whole book is overwhelming? Well, we are looking for you. We want to connect and collaborate with other podcasters, coaches, and entrepreneurs who want to gain exposure. We are looking for other people who want to co-author a book with us. You can find out more details at firestartersbookproject.com.